Chris. Good morning again, everyone. We are in our journey through the Gospel of John, so the word is going to come from John chapter 20 today, and we are going to continue to talk about the empty tomb, the resurrection, and then um, probably for the next couple of weeks. And today we are going to be in John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. So this is John chapter 20, 11 through 18. You could follow along in your Bibles if you want, or you can look up onto the monitors. And so in verse 11, this is sort of a little overlap from last week. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. Now this is Mary of Magdala, Mary Magdalene. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Verse 14, When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. So here we are getting uh, the appearance of the risen Christ. The first time we've seen him out of the tomb. And yet we are still compelled to stay here. And because there's so many Uh, great, amazing things we could squeeze out of it. But the most important thing is, how do we respond? Now, how do we respond to any event or circumstance in life? It's extremely important. The world will tell you it's all about just being positive, thinking positive. Why? Because, well, reacting is negative. That's what at least some motivational speakers have said. As the analogy goes, If the doctor gives you medication and you react to the medication, he tells you you've reacted to it, that typically means that something is bad. But if he says you've responded to the medication, that usually implies something good is happening. Therefore, responding is good, reacting is bad, being positively certain obviously helps in things and being negative all the time, like Debbie Downer. I don't know if you remember those skits from Saturday Night Live, but they're pretty hysterical. That is definitely not good. Now, regardless of what your view is on positivity, negativity, or the reactions and responding and those things, that could help or hurt you. Regardless, the most important response or reaction you can ever have will be how you answer the claim of the risen Christ. Or should I say, how you respond or react to the empty tomb. This is the most important decision you will ever make in your life. Now, last week we spoke about repetition in Scripture, small-scale, large-scale repetition. 
We notice that John mentioned the empty tomb nine times in the first 11 verses of this chapter. We discuss what the empty tomb meant, what John was pointing us to, and how we too can have the hope of an empty tomb at the final resurrection when Christ returns and brings in the fullness of his kingdom. So today, in order to squeeze out every drop of goodness and truth in this passage and to hang out in these resurrection passages as long as possible because they're so exciting and inspiring, I thought it would be best to break this up into a few parts. So today will be the first part of this passage alone, and next week will be the second part. Reason being is John is not only giving us some extremely great teaching on two very important, extremely important doctrines of the Christian faith, which is the resurrection and also the ascension. But he is also giving us some important truths in the example of Mary Magdalene on how we practically should respond to the empty tomb personally. Now, the unique thing in both aspects, both the personal response and the theological insights, John zooms into this unique character, Mary Magdalene, or Mary of Magdala. Magdala was a small town in northern Israel, just on the sea, uh, outside the Sea of Galilee. It was a fishing town. So she probably was uh, picked up around there uh, with Jesus as he was in those areas, teaching and preaching the kingdom of God. <clears throat> and uh, she was a very, very powerful, powerful disciple of Christ. There were other women in the other gospel accounts, actually four, that came to the empty tomb. However, John doesn't talk about those. He wants us truly to focus in on this one woman in his narrative, Mary Magdalene. Now, we touched on her character a bit last week, but today we're going to go close up and see what we can practically learn as a, in terms of her response to Christ, the risen Christ, and the empty tomb. So regardless of whether you see her response as positive or negative, doesn't matter. What really matters is regardless of where you are in your relationship with Jesus right now, whether you're a skeptic, sort of unsure, maybe you're an agnostic, maybe you don't know where you stand. Was the, did the resurrection really happen? Who knows? Maybe you're just a non-believer. You just don't have any like uh, belief at all in the risen Christ, but for some reason you're here or you're, you're watching online. Or maybe you are a believer in Christ, but your life isn't where you think it should be. Maybe you are what they call a backslider, if you'd like to use that term. I don't know. Regardless of where you are, my prayer is that we could follow Mary's example and emulate her response as John draws us to a very uh, specific plan of action here, I think, or some very specific steps we can personally take to properly respond to the empty tomb and the risen Christ. So today is going to be a lot of practical application today. Uh, My points are broken down in practical application rather than theological points with practical application, although we will touch a little bit on that. But next week we will get into the resurrection and the ascension, and we will determine just from this passage some very, very interesting and exciting uh, things in application as well. So what are the practical responses to the empty tomb that Mary Magdalene shows us? Well, I I believe the the first one is that Mary weeps for Jesus. 
Mary weeps. In verse 11, but Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. We see here that uh, some more repetition. She encounters the two angels as she stoops in. Now, if you've ever seen one of these tombs, there's actually two or three that have been excavated in Jerusalem that could really mimic the tomb of Jesus. There's only one that they believe could have been the actual tomb, which is the garden tomb. Um, but every, if you take a look at these tombs, they're, they're very big. They're hollowed out. There's lots of room inside. We mentioned before there could be room for one or two bodies. And then in the back, after about a year or two, they go in. And after the body has been uh, de- uh, um, uh, decomposed, they take, collect the bones and they put them in this box and they keep them in the tomb. And then the tomb continues to be reused. As we know, Jesus' tomb was never used before. It was owned by Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy man who donated it to Jesus, who was a secret disciple. And so here we see Mary peeking into the tomb. She doesn't go in. If you see these tombs, the outside of them, they're, they're like little hobbit houses. If you've ever seen Lord of the Rings, you know, the hobbit, you know, they have this little door and they're like little round holes that were only, you could barely fit through. So she probably peeked in and looked as not probably, that's what it says here. She stooped and looked into the tomb and she sees these two angels. And again, why are you weeping? We see repetition here. We see the two angels ask this question. We see Jesus in verse 15 ask this question. And her response to the angels is a repetition or a reiteration of verse 2, which says, so she ran and came and said, they have taken away my Lord out of the tomb. And that's what she responds to the two angels. She says, when they say, why are you weeping? Because they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they have laid him. As if she was going to go and take him back. She even said, let me know, sir. I will go and I will take him away. She responds to Jesus. So Mary was uh, thinking she's going to find the Lord Jesus. But the key is, is that she is weeping. And again, John's gospel is the only gospel that not only zeroes in on Mary Magdalene like this, but it's the only part of gospel that talks about her weeping. And so when we see these repetitions and we see these things from the writers of scripture, we need to take note. We need to dive in. We need to say this guy was writing this for a specific reason. More importantly, the Holy Spirit is, and was anointing him to write this for a specific reason. And so we get to look back in hindsight and put these scriptures and compare them with other scriptures and say, wow, and pull out some really good gems. So, you know, Mary was weeping, and I don't really think this is speculation. Why was she weeping? Well, she remembers what life was like before following Jesus. Can you remember what life was like before following Jesus? Before you even came to know or become spiritual, let's say, what you did, what your thoughts were. I don't know about you, but it's it's very funny because when you're single compared to when you're married, it's a two complete different worldview life. And two, it's, it's like as when you're single, young man or young lady, and you're single or even in your older years, it, your, your life becomes circle. It becomes about you because you're only taking care of yourself. But once you become married, you now have to kill that self and you then live for the other person. And that's simply what happens when you before the life with Christ, before our life with Jesus, whether we're married or we're not, 
We're very self-focused. We're very much interested in uh, the pleasures of the world. We're very much interested in uh, the amount of money in our bank account, uh, the amount whether or not we look good to the world, whether we're getting our, our mind uh, stimulated with, with things and we have our goals and all those things in and of themselves aren't necessarily wrong, but they're very self and inward focused. And then you meet Jesus Christ and he says, come to me and I will give you a new life. Come to me and I want you, although you believe that this is the way that life is, your life has died. Because of sin, you thought those ways. Because of sin, you did those things. But I am going to deliver you from sin and I am going to give you a new life. And that transformation is living unto Christ is just simply amazing. It's one of the greatest miracles ever done in our, in our, in our time, especially where we see someone come to Christ and become that new creature and know it can be nothing else, no one else other than the risen Christ, the Holy Spirit doing this. And some of us are like Mary of Magdalene. We would really weep without Christ. Mary wasn't just some normal conversion experience. She had a radical conversion. She had seven demons. That's why I believe she's not phased by these two angels. You know, you have seven demons living inside of you, and then you see two white angels. You're not like, what? Was this real? No, she knew the supernatural was real. I don't know about you if you've ever seen somebody that's demon-possessed, but it's not pretty. It's something that where they take over their life at certain times. Sometimes they could be normal. Sometimes they could be completely radical, as we see in the scriptures. It says in Luke 8, 1 to 2, I'll just read from verse 2. Some women who had been following Jesus were healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons have gone out. Now, I don't know whether what your theology is on demons. I like C.S. Lewis's uh, paraphrase. I'll paraphrase him. He says some people, you know, treat the demonic realm too much. And they, they think it's all about demonic realm, you know. And some people don't believe it at all. And both of those extremes are wrong. I agree with that because we have the scriptures that tell us. I believe when we give ourselves over and open ourselves up to things that are anti-Christ, sins, uh, that, are, uh, that leave ourselves open to take hold of us and have authority over us, I believe that at that point we could leave ourselves open for that influence. Now, church tradition often, often has labeled Mary of Magdalene or Mary of Magdala uh, a form of prostitute. But I don't believe anything in Scripture supports this. Mary was a very common name among first century Jewish women. And again, there's about four different Marys in the Gospels. And so in Luke 7, where the woman who was a sinner was wiping his feet uh, with her tears and her hair, um, you know, some church traditions believe that that was Mary of Magdalene. I don't necessarily think that we have the right to go there and expound on that. Could be a possibility, but we don't know anything beyond that. But we do know that this woman was weeping because she knew what life was before Jesus. She also remembers she's weeping, I believe, because she was a disciple for Jesus, um, well, following Jesus, but not only a disciple, she cared for Jesus. She took care of Jesus. She supported Jesus. In Luke 8, 2, Mary, who was called Magdalene, uh, and many others were contributing to the support 
of Jesus and the disciples out of their private means. So she believed. She believed with action. She didn't just believe intellectually. She gave her life to become a follower of Christ, and she gave her possessions of her possessions and of her money to support him and take care of him. And back then, what, would, what it would be like is you would have the, the male disciples, especially in the Jewish context where male and female were separate in the synagogues and so forth. The women took care of all the physical needs of the men as it relates to food, clothing, uh, you know, doing just the practical stuff. And that was what provided the men, again, equal. Here's a great picture of equality, but yet different re- uh, responsibilities. And so that's what she was doing. So now she, her whole life is knocked out of whack. Now her whole life is, in her opinion, in her mind, she is now weeping because of this death and potential life without him. So what do we get out of this Mary was weeping? Well, the first practical response to this empty tomb for you and I that I believe she's teaching us is that we must weep until we encounter Jesus. We must weep until we encounter Jesus. <clears throat> You know, um, I I often say that, I would say that every single person that I've ever spoken to that is wrangling and struggling with spiritual things, wrangling and struggling with um, their belief or their faith, why why do I just have this small little bit of faith in other people that seem to be, you know, thriving in in all this? And I would say that 99% of the time when talking or counseling with people, the number one reason that they don't have this um, connection, so to speak, is because of they haven't yet wept for Christ. They haven't yet, not literally wept, but, but yearned for him and sought him in such a way that as he promises to reveal himself, having that communion with him, I would say is the number one reason why people cannot connect with Christ is lack of communion. You can be saved, you can have that measure of faith, but you're just sort of there. And so what the Lord wants you to do is what the Lord wants with you is he wants this relationship where as if he were to step away from you, you would weep. It wouldn't be like, yeah, well, you know, I haven't went to church in a couple weeks and I uh, haven't really read the Bible, and so I really got to get back to that. You know, this should, uh, should bother us when we don't have that communion. So how do we do this? Well, some practical things you could do is obviously pray and cry out to the Lord. Like when's the last time you've literally verbally cried out to God in in private? When's the last time you've done that? Maybe you maybe you 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 could follow the example of David. All throughout the Psalms, I could go through a lot of them. I'll give you a few. But pray Psalm 102. It's a prayer of the afflicted when he is faint. The prayer for the afflicted when he is faint. And he pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me and in the day when I call, answer me quickly. This is a man of God, man, woman of God. Think about it, man. When I say man of God, I mean mankind, man, woman, right? Man of God who is writing the Psalms, who feels God is hiding his face from him. So this is a normal thing that we go through. 
Don't beat yourself up if you feel like you're a little disconnected. Come to the Lord in prayer. This is oftentimes what God does and uses to draw us near. Because of our sinful bodies, the more God gives us, the more we're like, okay, I'm full, I'm good now. I just, I feel so great. You ever, you ever notice that when we feel so great is when we turn away the quickest? I have to tell you, Sunday nights and Mondays are the hardest for me. They really are. Because I've spent all week preparing and I, I'm feeling great. And then to be able to preach the word of God is so great. And then there's always some weird, like, retraction that I that I'm inclined to on Sunday afternoons and Mondays I'm just inclined to just be like oh you know like I'm just so I have to be careful of that and so you have to do the same thing you have to figure out what those triggers are and when you see yourself going backward a little bit that's when you have to go to the Lord Lord I'm going backward Lord I don't feel you Lord I want to weep for you Lord, Pastor Pat talked about weeping for you. I don't feel like weeping for you, Lord. Make me weep for you. Lord, let me know you. And this is what our God and King wants us to hear, wants us to say. He wants to hear that. He doesn't go, oh, well, yeah, what are you going to just do it again? If I come to you now, then what's that going to do? You're just going to backslide again later. No, he said, yes, come here. This is what I came to save sinners. This, this, the, 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 the healthy don't need a doctor. And we are all sick with sin. Psalm 34, 6 to 7. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear them, him and rescues them. Mary was weeping here at the tomb, and God was with her, literally standing right there, but she didn't know it. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. I cried to God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple and my cry for help before him came to his ears. Psalm 18, 6. Mary, I believe John is showing us in this application that Mary is saying, look, without Jesus, I weep. And we could follow that. Without Jesus in your life, there will be weeping. There will be grief. There will be emptiness one that you cannot fill with anything else. And maybe you're challenging me on that, and I'll say, I'm not going to try to convince you. I'm just going to say, well, you'll see, hopefully. Knowing him and his presence, knowing Jesus Christ and his presence, this is a, I'm going to, this is a, a, a big statement here, but that is the purpose of all humanity. That's your purpose. See, we say we want to be happy, We want to go here. I want to live there. I want to have this and I want to have that. I want to die in my old age with all my family around me all together. And uh, my sons and daughters, they they leave and go, dad was such a great dad. Let's go follow the Lord now and have a good life and be multi-generational. That's what we think is going to happen, right? But I'll tell you right now, God says that, look, you know me. You've just fulfilled your purpose in humanity. That's the purpose. That's not, God doesn't guarantee happiness. He doesn't guarantee riches. He doesn't guarantee any of that. But what he does guarantee is fulfillment of who you were meant to be as a, as a human being. And outside of Jesus Christ, our, our flesh is always searching for other fulfillment. We want this, we want that. 
even as Christians, you know, we, we got to be careful and keep Christ as the center. But without him, there is nothing we'll strive, but we'll never find. So weep for him, call for him if you're missing him right now, whether you're a believer or a non-believer, and he will hear your cry and become real, more real to you and give you the faith that you need. Number two, so Mary weeps for Jesus. The second thing she does is Mary listens. Mary hears Jesus. She stoops in into the tomb and she looks. That didn't work. Nothing else would work other than the real person. Not even two angels in white. But she wanted her Lord but she was looking in the wrong places. She was doing the wrong thing by looking. And that's a lot of things. That's a lot of times we fail. Is we, we, we feel like we're a little bit reserved back. We're, we're not connected with the Lord like we want to. So what do we do is we begin to look at different things. The first place we usually look is church. Well, I'm just going to go to church. And I'm going get, to get back at church. And that's great. Come to church to worship the Lord. Come to church to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's good. But it will not work unless you hear his voice. Go to some other sort of desire, some system of religion. Even reading the Bible sometimes. When we just go to it, we go, all right, I got to read quick. Okay, but Thomas, one of the 12. All right, good. I did my reading today. Oh, man, I just don't feel good today. I don't feel the Lord, you know. Or I read 15 chapters that's my goal, 18 chapters a day, 25 chapters a week, whatever it is. And unless we'd hear, that doesn't matter either. See, what happened was, <clears throat> when she had turned around in verse 14, she saw Jesus standing there. And oftentimes you say, we have, Lord, if you just reveal yourself to me, show me who you are, appear to me, show me a sign and we get all the, then we get all mystical. Was that a sign? Was this, that could, and we start to do all the numbers and backtrack and think about all that stuff. God doesn't want us to do that. If he wants to give you a sign, you'll know it, but don't seek after a sign. <clears throat> so what does she do? She turns, she sees Jesus standing there and she didn't know that it was him. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now, this is interesting. I love how John puts this in here. She supposes him to be the gardener. Again, echoing back to what? The garden. You see, we spent a lot of time on this a couple weeks ago, that this tomb in the new garden brings us back to the original sin in the first garden. Jesus being the second Adam, <clears throat> she mistakes Jesus as, as the gardener, which yes, it, he, it's wrong on one level, but right on another level. He is the new gardener. He is the one who is making the garden right again. Now, she doesn't know who he is. Now, in verse 14, <clears throat> she sees him standing there. This is what's called an audience revelation, which is nothing better when in a movie, when you feel so smart and cool, when you notice something about that's going to happen or about the character that the director or the writer skillfully puts in there, and the characters in the, audience, in the, in the film, they don't know it, but the audience knows it. 
And then what does that do? It just, it cranks up the anticipation, the drama, the conflict. And we just were waiting, you know, what's, when, when are they going to find out? And sort of that's what John is using that technique here. It's really neat, you know? So she supposes him to be the gardener. And this just is like exponentially, climatically growing. Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you've laid him. I will take him and she's Mary. And there, boom, she heard his voice. Rabbi, it's you. That's just a way to say master or teacher. She finally recognizes that it's Jesus, not by sight, not by Holy Spirit goosebumps, not by feeling, not by anything else, but by listening to his voice. And again, that that repetition echoing back again. Whom are you seeking? Now, this actually echoes back even further. John uses almost the same uh, structure in sentencing and everything in John chapter 1. When the disciples coming to meet Jesus for the very first time after John the Baptist was doing his stuff and they were following Jesus, right? Jesus saw them following and turned around and said, what do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher. He's using the same thing. He put the same two words and same words there. Where are you staying? And I believe John is telling us this, echoing us back, that those who sought him at the beginning of his ministry also have this invitation after his earthly ministry to now find and follow the risen Christ in this new aspect of ministry. And it begins by listening. And that's the second practical response. Seek him not by sight, but by hearing his voice calling you. He will call you by name. Maybe not by name, meaning, hey, Amanda, or hey, PJ, or whatever. He, may, he, he speaks to you in a way where you're like, oh, well, that's undeniable. That was God. God is speaking to me. He speaks in a still, small voice. <clears throat> he, he, he talks to us. He says uh, in John 10, 29, but you don't believe. You don't believe because why? You didn't go to the right church. You didn't do the right things. No, you don't believe because you're not of my sheep. Well, Jesus, how can we identify the sheep? We all look like sheep. Oh, 27, verse 27 in John 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Again, the voice the sheep, the resurrection, the empty tomb, you will never perish. The surety of Christ and his voice to his sheep is incredible. Like Mary, you will recognize him by his voice, confirming that, yes, he is, in fact, the good shepherd. Oh, wandering sheep, your good shepherd is constantly going to pursue you. He is constantly, how do you know that you're, how do you know? Well, right now you're saying to yourself, eh, I don't know. I don't know if I hear his voice. Or maybe some of you are going, that spoke to my heart. That word, that scripture, that's the Lord. That's the Lord speaking to you through his word. And you now respond by going to him, calling him, Rabbi, teacher. And that's what she did. She recognized him 
by his voice. She confirmed he's the good shepherd. She called him Lord. She falls at his feet. And that leads us to the third thing is that Mary shows us that there is joy in finding Jesus. There is extreme joy in finding Jesus, a joy that can never be taken away, a joy that makes happiness look like steak compared to dog food. Happiness isn't what God wants to give us. Well, we'll have happy times, but it's an expression of the joy that we have in him. So Mary's weeping is turned into gladness, as Chris read this morning from the Psalms. Empty tomb, weeping, lamenting, grief, problems, unfulfilled expectations, not knowing what to do next, ready to break down, ready to just collapse. Boom. Find Jesus, it instantly turns to joy. We now see the reason the tomb was empty. Jesus has risen. And the cool thing is that back in John 16, Jesus promised this to his disciples. I think he's promising the same thing to us. We can use this and apply this in many ways. But contextually, he was literally talking about what we're reading right now. Truly, I truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament. And I'm sure Mary of Magdalene was right there. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. It's a great analogy. This is exactly what was happening with Mary, right? She was, she was going through pain. And then, boom, Jesus appears, he's there, he's reborn. She now has joy. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. And that's what Chris read, Psalm 30, 11 to 12. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. This was a scripture that for me meant a lot. When I first got converted 20-some years ago, this scripture popped out of me because I could so relate to it, the misery that I had personally been in. And it's not like that everybody has to be miserable in order to come to Christ, although I highly recommend it. <laughs> Works great. It gets, it's a much faster road. But the joy that I felt, the burden that came off of my back because I knew that Christ had forgiven me of my sin was just absolutely made completely so real to me. It was so real. And the, the rest of the scripture says, you've loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. Oh Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever because of this transformation. I'll give thanks for you forever in heaven, in, in the resurrection, eternity. We will be giving thanks to the one true God because of what he's done of this transformation. And then, of course, Mary clings to him. She grabs onto him. Now, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, right? Because in Jesus's earthly ministry, Jesus would have been like, he would have hugged back, right? He had people clinging to him, touching his robe. He had children coming to him. But now there's a difference. Now there's a difference. 
See, you and I must cling to Christ. When we encounter the risen Christ, we must cling to him, but not in a physical way. You see, that's what Jesus was saying. The relationship that he has now with his disciples is different. You see, physical clinging was for the earthly ministry. But now that he's about to ascend to the Father, there's a different dynamic. It's going to be an even better relationship because of the Holy Spirit and the presence of Christ. So yes, we, tell, we see Jesus saying, stop clinging to me. And we're going to really break this down more next week when we, when we talk about the doctrine of the ascension and the resurrection. But for our practical purposes now, you cling to Jesus and you won't let go. You know, I remember, maybe you were with me now, I'm not sure, but we were in a uh, Target a couple years ago and all of a sudden this woman started screaming for her child. Like not even, like, you know, not like, uh, Leah, where are you? But she was just like, ah, and she was screaming around. Do you remember that? Were you with me? It was probably someone else. <laughs> and then so I, I was like, and then all of a sudden she's going up to the, she's running to the exit, she's running to the end. She had lost her child, her little boy, I think it was. She couldn't find him. And she was panicking. And, you know, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but it's, it's happened to me for like seconds. And I sort of give my kids a whack. Don't ever do that, you know? And so, but she had lost this child for a good minute. And so minute, two minutes. And uh, she was panicking and she found that child and she clinged on to that child and held him and she picked him up and put him here and just, oh, oh, you know, kissed him all over the place. And he had no idea what was going on, right? He was just wandering. I think he was in the clothes racks or something like that. But that's what we need to do. When we find Christ, we cling. And the father says in John 10, the father who has given the sheep to Jesus is greater than all And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So by clinging to Jesus, you are now, in fact, in the hand of your Father in heaven. The strongest being in the universe or beyond the universe or whatever. I can't even over-exaggerate his strength. That's where you are positionally. You're never going to be let go. And, and that's why I believe we must cling to him. But how do we cling to him in our present time where he isn't physically here? Again, Jesus is a, is a physical being in heaven. There's not little mini Jesuses everywhere. When you pray, he's not with me and he's sitting in my bed and over there. He's with us spiritually through the Holy Spirit, which is Jesus said is even better and empowers us even more and comforts us even more. But how do you cling to him? There's only really like two, two ways to do this that I see. The one is, I've already mentioned it, communion. But deliberate communion with Jesus. Deliberate. You see, a lot of times we don't hear, but this is a tangible thing I'm talking about. To know him. It's not necessarily tangible here, but it's something that you know, that you know is there and is true. This this is not like just walking by faith blind in a room, in a dark room or whatever. No, you need to encounter the risen Jesus Christ. And he will reveal himself to you. But there needs to be that deliberate communion. And there also needs to be that deliberate time in his word. 
Deuteronomy 13.4, you shall follow the Lord your God and fear him. You shall keep his commandments. Listen to the order here. Keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him and cling to him. Joshua 23.8, but you are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. In other words, all the people that made the conquest in the, into, the, into the promised land with Joshua, they clung on to the Lord. It was the temple. They weren't even allowed near it. In Psalm 119, 31, they, how did they do it? I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. <clears throat> Communion <clears throat> determines your level of faith. Communion with the Lord through the word will, will determine your level of faith. If you read the word of God and determine to communicate with him on a regular basis for now, for one year, you will be a different, completely changed individual in one year from now, spiritually. I guarantee it, it may happen quicker. You may not notice it, but others will. But it's that communion. So <clears throat> that communion in the word and this is the thing that is difficult because reading the word is sometimes time consuming for us. We're busy. We don't have a pattern of it. We have other things on our mind. But there comes a time where you got to say, look, I need to be I need to make the commitment to do this. And you have to focus in and set aside the time and go through the difficult spots and get in the word of God. Otherwise, where is your faith other than, yeah, I believe I'm, you know, I'm following the Lord and I'm doing the best I can, but this has got to be your priority. Jesus has to be your priority in life. You know, we don't, we all have the same amount of time, but we all have different priorities than where we spend that time. And Jesus calls Christians to prioritize him first. So here's the summary of today. <clears throat> first practical response of the empty tomb. Weep until you encounter the risen Christ. Cry out to him in prayer. Second response, seek him, not by sight, but by listening and hearing his voice. Like Mary, you will recognize his voice, confirming he is your good shepherd who knows his sheep. <clears throat> the third response we talked about is when you do encounter him, your weeping will turn into gladness. You will cling to him. So cling to him through the word. Now, again, if you have to go here, I recommend it <clears throat> to, in order to get this to really get you on the right track. Do you understand what he has saved you from? Do you? If I said, I guarantee you, when you asked five out of 10 Christians, what did God save you from? They'll say hell. And he certainly did. You will not be judged <clears throat> eternally. You will not have the torment that people who have rejected Christ in this life and rejected God. And really, everyone who is born into this world is a fallen sinner coming out of the womb. And why does God pass over some and, and, and call to others? I have no idea. We rather say, why does he call anybody? Because we all, none of us deserve his, 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 his salvation. 
So it's not hell that necessarily he saved you from. He saved you from himself, his holiness. He is a holy, uh, um, righteous, just being that we cannot even comprehend. As we talked about, as Chris, I believe, prayed, Lord, we're, we're so, we want to praise you, but even in our best way to pray, we're still falling short. And so when you stand before that white, fierce, hot, burning light of righteousness in your own sin, you are consumed like a dry leaf in front of a blast furnace, gone. That's what he saved you from. So think about that if you have to. He saved you from himself. He saved you from a life of sin. He saved you from death. You're, no, you're going to die, but you're going to pass through death differently than people that don't know Christ. You're going to be right into his presence immediately, comforted. And then you're going to be risen from the dead. And you're going to get your new body on a new heavens and a new earth. And you are going to have eternity to spend with this God. And he saved you from just the opposite, complete separation from him for eternity. So if you have to focus and think of that. It's hard, folks. I mean, you know, as a personal trainer uh, in, my, in, in my past life, and even now when I try to help some, mostly the young guys and gals, I notice that those that get really good results and those that don't have a very distinct commonality. Those that are able to go through and continue the set, whether it's a bench press or whatever, through the pain zone after it starts hurting and continue to go through it because they know that's the only way that they are going to get results. And the most frustrating thing is putting time in to your physical fitness and getting no results. Everybody, when they start exercising, gets results right away. So it's not about what you're doing. It's what are you doing that stops working? You got to crank up the intensity, don't you? And the number one reason why people get no results is because when it starts to hurt, they stop. They stop the set. They won't work through the pain and weep. They won't do that. And that's the hardest thing to train somebody to do is to get through the pain zone. And not move the weight and swing the weight and throw it around, but really squeeze it and get that muscle to be pain. Because as most people that know this stuff says, look, it does, the set doesn't start until it starts hurting. And I'm telling you that with your Christianity, with your walk with Christ. If you just stop when it gets uncomfortable, if you just stop when you don't feel like it, if you just stop when it gets a little painful, you're going to get no results. You're going to feel separate from God. You're going to be like, what am I doing this for? I get, uh, my workouts are boring. My time with the Lord is boring. Start over. Go and get that reset. Make a new commitment, not only in your personal life to be holy, but make that commitment that you are going to, like Mary, you are going to seek after him and you are not going to stop. Even if it brings you to weeping, you're going to keep, you're going to keep pestering him. You're going to say, Lord, I want to hear your voice. I want to come closer to you. I want to know you more. I challenge you to do that. And if you don't know Christ, all you have to do is come to him and say, save me, Lord. And you take your sins that you know that you're in or that you, you admit that you've fallen and that you've fallen short and you tell that to him and he will save you. Every single person that comes to him 
will never, ever be rejected. So I encourage you with those words to weep, seek, and cling. Next week, we'll discuss, uh, as I said, the theological aspects of the resurrection, uh, judicially, and as it relates to the ascension. So uh, I know they sound like big words, and it's not going to be a lecture on theology, but it's going to be exciting. And so I hope that you guys can follow this next week. And then after that, we're going to get into Jesus uh, uh, leaving his disciples and And then before you know it, we'll be in John chapter 21, which is sort of like an appendix, which is really neat. And so we'll probably be in John for another three years. Let's pray. Lord, I do uh, pray for each one of us here in this room that you would give us a renewed heart, a renewed desire to want to seek after you, to want to just weep for you, to want to cling to you, Lord, to listen for your voice. And God, we, uh, Lord, we uh, come to you humbly, Lord, by the blood of your son. Um, We don't come with any demands. We come as we are right now, wherever we are. And uh, I pray that you meet us where we are. And so, Lord, as we pray, um, as we uh, finish this last worship song and we close, uh, if there is anyone here, I pray that, that, that needs you, that needs to be renewed, that needs to know you, whatever it is, whether they're here or they're watching, that they would just cry out to you in prayer, even silently right now, and to begin that process. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.